Well, God is the ultimate promise keeper. One way to describe the Christian life is that we as believers in Christ are to build our lives on the promises of God. We're to, we're to build our lives on his sure promises that we get from his sure word. We don't just say about the promises of God, oh, those are some nice promises out there. I wonder what they have to do with me, right? Or those are some nice promises. They make me feel good today, but then tomorrow or next week or next year, we, you know, we just kind of go on our lives, building our lives on a different faulty foundation. No, we want to build our lives on God's promises, Going through life as a Christian without banking on his promises. Going through life as a Christian without steadfastly banking on the promises of God is like walking through a bright sunny day with your eyes closed. C.S. Lewis once said something like this. I'm not, not sure it's exactly like this, but he said something like, I believe Christianity like I believe the sun, not only because I see it, but also because by it, I see everything else. And that's the way that the the promises of God are meant to function in our lives. We're not just to believe them, which we are, but then we're to see all of life through God's promises. That's what it means to live as a Christian. Well, in the book of Hebrews here in chapter 8, we've come to the place where the new covenant is introduced. Jesus is the high priest and mediator of the new covenant. His high priestly ministry and the covenant he mediates is vastly superior to the former priesthood of Aaron and the Levites and vastly superior to the former covenant given through Moses. The covenant through Moses fell short, and and it says here that it fell short. It says that it was faulty. God found fault with The covenant, it was not faultless, I should say, is what our text says. And it fell short in in at least a couple of very fundamental ways. First, the covenant given through Christ is eternal, whereas the covenant that came through Moses was temporary. God designed it with a built-in expiration date, you might say. Verse 13 says, the new covenant makes the first one obsolete. And what is, ob- what is obsolete is growing old and is ready to vanish away. But also verse 6 tells us that the instruction given to Moses for the tabernacle and sacrificial system, that was all part of the, the, uh, the scaffolding, if you will, of the old covenant. All of this was a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. It was a copy. It was a shadow. So it was not only temporary, but also pointed to a greater reality, namely the new covenant in Christ. The old covenant was provisional. It served God's purposes for a period of time. But the new covenant is an eternal covenant. Hebrews 13.20 calls it the eternal covenant in Christ. Second, the, the covenant given through Christ was enacted on better promises, far better promises than the promises that were given in the covenant that came through Moses. The promises of the new covenant, in fact, are breathtakingly glorious. And since God is the ultimate promise keeper, we can totally bank on his promises. We can, we can, we can take them to the bank every day and into eternity. He will not, remember last week we, we looked at the, where, where God says, I swear 
I swear I'm going to do this, and I will not change my mind. Jesus, being the high priest, what we're seeing today is of the new covenant. So what I want to do in the time we have left is I want to answer two questions. First, I want to answer, what are these better promises of the new covenant? What are these promises that are so much better? And second, what does a new covenant person look like? Someone who is building their lives on these promises, someone who's living in light of these promises in Christ that are given to us through the new covenant. What does this person look like? What does their life look like? So first, what are the better promises of the new covenant? There are four laid out in our passage. And in, uh, in your Bible, if, if you have a little letter next to, you know, where, where the writer of Hebrews says, this is the, the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. He's quoting from Jeremiah 31. And there are four promises laid out here, four promises. The first is the promise of inner power for obedience. Inner power for obedience. It says, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. This is the first promise. I will put my laws into their minds and I will write my laws on their hearts. The new covenant is not unconcerned with the law of God. We should, we should, that should be shouted from the rooftops. Many Christians think that because we're not under the law in terms of our justification before God, that somehow the law of God has nothing to do with us anymore. That's not true. The, the, the new covenant is also not unconcerned about obedience to God's moral law. The problem with the old covenant is that the, the law was written on tablets of stone, right? Moses came down with tablets of stone with the Ten Commandments written on them. They were tablets of stone. You could see them with your physical eyes, but they were outside of you. They were externally imposed upon you from without, Furthermore, God's law was imposed on unregenerate, spiritually dead people who could not positively respond to it. The new covenant promise is for the law of God to be put in our minds and written on our hearts, which I think is a way of saying that something radical and supernatural happens inside of us so that we can positively respond to God and his commands. Whereas before we couldn't. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, the, the, the unspiritual man cannot discern the things of the spirit. Right? Because they are, they're, they're, they're archaic to him. They, he can't understand them. So here's what happens. God does a miracle in the heart. In the new covenant, God does a miracle in the heart. He takes a dead heart and raises it to life. A heart that was dead, unresponsive to God, or maybe better put, responsive negatively to God and rebellion to God. He takes that heart and raises it to brand new life. That's what happens. Ezekiel 36 Verses 26 and 27, I think speaks of the same reality as Hebrews 8 and Jeremiah 31 is talking about, just using different language. Listen to what the prophet Ezekiel says, speaking on God's behalf. So this is God speaking through Ezekiel. He says, and I will give you a new heart 
and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and listen to this, and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. See what God is doing here? He, he's the one who takes out the stony heart. Think, what is a stone? It represents dead, cold, hard, unresponsive heart, right? He takes that out. He puts in a heart of flesh. He puts his spirit inside of us. And all of this causes us to walk in God's statutes and to be careful to obey his rules. Amen. Gives a new heart. In other words, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. He is given a brand new life. He's given a brand new heart. The new covenant is not less interested in actual obedience. Here's what the new covenant does. God not only lays out the obligations for obedience in the new covenant, he also creates the obedience he requires. He empowers us to actually obey him. He causes us to walk in his statutes and to be careful to obey his rules. He puts his laws into our minds and writes them on our hearts. It's in vain for someone to try harder to be obedient without receiving life from Christ. That's what we need. We need life from Christ. We need the life of Christ. We need him to do something radical and glorious and miraculous in our hearts where he implants his spirit within us, giving us his life and a new heart that doesn't just obey, doesn't just do what we're told, but we, we delight to do his will. Right? We understand, right? He puts it in our minds and he writes it on our hearts. There's this wonderful promise. We're actually, it's a wonderful prophecy. We're going to see it later in the book of Hebrews too. I think it's in Isaiah 42. Speaking of the, the coming servant of God, Christ. And it's talking about Jesus. Now Jesus will come and he will delight to do God's will. And I think for those of us that are in Christ by faith, we're, we're reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ, there is a growing desire and delight to not do our own will, but to do his will. What is needed is a new heart in the hearing of the gospel with faith. I believe it was John Bunyan the verdict's still out. I, I, I thought it was John Bunyan who said this, and then I read something and said, no, it wasn't John Bunyan. And then I read somebody else say, yeah, actually it was. I don't know. I think it's John Bunyan who said this. He wrote this little poem. Run, John, run, the law commands, but it gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us to fly and gives us wings. That's the difference. The new covenant promise is that God bids us to fly and he gives us wings to do so. 
The promise is, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. God gives the new, God gives the new life and power through his spirit for obedience to his commands. The second promise of the new covenant laid out here in Hebrews chapter 8 is the promise of mutual personal relationship with God. This mutual personal relationship with God. Here's what it says. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Revelation 21.3 tells us what life will be like in the new heavens and new earth. Here's what it says. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. The joy and glory of the new covenant is that we get to experience this future reality that we hope in, right? Revelation 21, new heavens, new earth, that's future where God will be in our midst as our God. We will be his people. The wonder of the new new covenant is that we get to experience this in part now. God is not just God. He is your God. If you are in Christ, if you are in Christ, he is not just God out there. He is your God. And if you are in Christ, you are not just, in some abstract sense, his beloved child, or a, beloved, a, a person, a person made in God's image. You are his beloved child. He is your God. What does this mean? What does it mean that God is our God? I mean, obviously, to discover the full meaning of this would take all of eternity, will take all of eternity to discover Right? How unfathomable the promise, I will be their God. One thing that it means is that we could never say this about God unless he first gave himself graciously to us. Right? For, for us to say, he is my God. He first needed to give himself in love, in grace to us. Like a husband at the altar saying to his wife, I and all that I am and all that I have is yours. That's what God says to us. I and all that I am and all that I have, I am yours. If you went and only occupied yourself with this thought with an open Bible for a month, you would not exhaust the meaning. When God says, I will be their God. You would discover it means that he is father. Yes, he is a loving and tender father. Your loving and tender father. Jesus teaches us to pray, our father. And we can personalize and say, my father. He is a loving and tender father. You'd also discover he's a shepherd. Your shepherd, watching and guarding his flock, watching and guarding your life. You'd also discover he is a friend, one who sticks closer than a brother. You discover he's a rock we can build our house on. He is a shelter we can seek refuge in. Do you find yourself in need of comfort? 2 Corinthians 1.3 says that God, your God, is the God of all comfort. Do you need wisdom? This God, who is your God, is the only wise God. Romans 16.27, who gives wisdom to all who ask him. 
Think about this. I mean, an entire solar system of blessings is opened up to us in the statement, I will be their God. Charles Spurgeon said in a sermon on this text, it comprehends all the gracious titles, all the blessed promises, and all divine privileges. When God says, I will be their God. But then the next phrase is, and they shall be my people. And I don't think this is talking about just raw possession, right? God owns everything in the, in the planet. He owns every person by rights of creation and by his sovereignty. So Psalm 24, one says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and everyone who dwells in it. So everyone and everything belongs to God by virtue of him being the creator But this is a promise that God will look upon his people and guard his people and love his people as his treasured possession. Paul prays in Ephesians 1 that the the, the church in Ephesus, he prayed that they would know the riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints. The riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints. It's it's speaking not of our inheritance. There certainly are places in the New Testament that do that. Praise be to God. This is talking about God's inheritance. What is God's inheritance? What did Jesus come to secure for God? Many sons and daughters, children to fill his house with. God's inheritance in his redemptive purposes is the saints, which Christ purchased with his blood. We just sang it. Those he saves are his delight. The new covenant assures us that we are precious in his holy sight. Speaking to the nation of Israel in Deuteronomy 7, 6, God says, for you are a people holy to the Lord, your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. God chose Israel to be his treasured possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. And Peter applies this idea, this thought to the new covenant people of God when he said, you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession that you might, may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The new covenant is enacted on this promise. I will be their God and they shall be my people. The third promise that we see here is the promise of intimate knowledge. Intimate knowledge of God. Goes on to say, and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. They shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. Of course, this is not a universal, this is not a passage of universalism saying everyone on planet earth, everyone who's ever been made will know the Lord. The all here is speaking of different types because it says, they shall all know me from the least to the greatest. All those truly united to Christ by faith know the Lord. They know him. You know him. Of course, not exhaustively. It's not like we get this immediate one terabyte download of data regarding God. It's not like the Bible is just downloaded into our brains. That's not the way that it works. 
but there is a true saving knowledge of God for all those who repent and trust in Christ, for all the new covenant people of God. When a baby's first born, in one sense, that baby knows very little about the mother. Doesn't know the color of hair, doesn't know the mom's name probably, doesn't know when the mom was born. There's a lot of things about the mother that baby doesn't know. But in another sense, that baby knows the mother through and through, right? In fact, that mo- the mother's the only person that baby knows and wants to be with for a period of time. When one is born of God, they know the Lord. What is probably in view here is a, in particular is a saving knowledge of the Lord. Paul says in 1 Timothy 2.4, God, our, he's praying that God our Savior, he said, God our Savior desires, desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So this deep, profound, and immediate saving knowledge of the truth. And in one sense, in a moment, a newly born again person has more true knowledge of God than the most learned, liberal, unregenerate, tenured seminary professor. Think about the, the, the knowledge God has given to man to compass the earth. I teach a few handful of kids on Tuesdays and we're going through an astronomy book for science and we're learning about all these planets and and these scientists who have discovered how to build shelter you know uh, uh, spacecrafts to go and take pictures and learn and and so forth and it's and it's amazing what God has given us the ability to learn and understand and know And yet all of these things are created things. In the new covenant, the marvel is that the infinite God has given us a knowledge of him. A true knowledge of himself. Perhaps a little now, right? Perhaps we just know a very little bit, but someday it'll be full-orbed. In part now, and someday it will be perfected. And this is the promise of the new covenant. They will all know me from the least to the greatest, from the youngest to the oldest, from the the least educated to the most educated. They will all know me. The fourth promise is the promise of total forgiveness. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. When Jesus offered up himself, he won for us total forgiveness. Total forgiveness. Under the old covenant, the day of atonement, Yom Kippur would come around every year and Hebrews 10.3 says, here's all it did. This is all it actually did. It just served as a reminder of sin every year. It was just a public notice before God and humanity that men were still sinners. Through Christ, however, sin is actually removed. The promise of the new covenant in the blood of Jesus is that he took all our sins, every last 
one of them away. Every one of them. The one or the ones that you are most ashamed of. The ones that when you think about them, it causes you to, to blush that you would do such a thing. He takes every last one of them away. They're gone. He put them on his shoulders. He took them to the cross. And when he was taken out from the cross, he took them to the grave. They are gone. And they're gone forever. And therefore, when you hear the gospel with faith, here's what you should hear. You should hear the sound of your sins vanishing. Right now, when you hear the good news with faith that this is what Christ has done, you should hear the sound of your sins vanishing. You should hear your sins rushing away from you as far as the east is from the west. When you hear with faith that Jesus actually took sins away, you should hear the sound of your sins sinking to the bottomless ocean, never to be brought up again. And it's because the promise of the new covenant in the blood of Jesus is that God remembers our sins no more. He doesn't remember them. This is astounding. Now some might say, how can this be? Does God have amnesia? Is he an amnesiac? I thought he was all-knowing. Omniscient, knows all things. And yet this says he remembers our sins no more. How can it be? It's not as though God suffers from a lack of knowledge of all things. He is God. He he cannot become less than God. And he will not become less than God for his people. That would be the worst thing in the world. He's omniscient. This has to do with judgment. This has to do with judgment. Our sins will never be brought up in judgment against us. Ever. Ever, ever, ever. Justice has been satisfied, right? God's justice, God's justice, right? He's a righteous judge. God's justice because of your sins. What you deserve and what I deserve, the justice we deserve from God, a righteous judge because of our rebellion against him, it has been satisfied, The wrath of God has been completely quenched and absorbed in Christ. And so there's none left for us. He remembers our sins no more. So I have to ask you, are you in Christ? Have you trusted in Christ? Are you believing in Christ today? Is he your salvation and your hope? Then where are your sins? You know what you may say? They are gone, forgotten. They are removed as far as the east is from the west. Not just out of sight, like swept under a cosmic rug, Jesus took them when he was treated like a sinner on the cross. And you and I are free now. I was thinking, I was reading this last week in John chapter 8, and there's that story It's not in some of the earliest manuscripts, and usually your Bible kind of points that out. But it's the story of this woman who's caught in the act of adultery. 
You guys know that story? And the Pharisees bring her out to Jesus, and they do it to try to trick him. They do it to try to, to tr- try to get him. Right? And they said, this woman's caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says she's to be stoned. What do you say? And you know what Jesus does, right? I mean, he's like one of these ultimate takedowns. He, he, uh, he bends down and begins writing something in the sand. And he stands up. And he says, he who is without sin, let him cast the first stone. And they all began walking away from the oldest to the youngest. The older guys apparently had a little more wisdom, right? Plenty of sin. I'm not going to cast the first stone. They all walked away. And Jesus turned to the woman and said, where are your accusers? She said, there are none. And Jesus said, well, neither do I accuse you. Go and sin no more. And just the thought came to me. Because Christ has taken our sins away, he has removed them, right? He bore our sins in his body on the tree. He took them away. Where are the accusers, your sins? There are none in Christ. And Jesus says, well, neither do I accuse you then. Go and sin no more. This is glorious beyond measure. This is a wonderful, wonderful truth. In, in, in the Pilgrim's Progress, um, Christian, the main character of, of this beautiful allegory, John Bunyan wrote, he has this weight on his back. And he's lugging it around on this journey and he comes to the cross. I'm giving you the cliff note version. He comes to the cross. And the burden fell off his back. Not part of it. Not most of it. It all fell off. And he was free. And you know what else? It filled him with joy. What do new covenant people look like? When we build our, pro- our lives on the promises of God, that he gives us a new inner power for, obe- for obedience, that he is our God and we are his people, that we have this knowledge of him and that he's taken all of our sins away. What does it look like if you believe this and you build your life on this? What effect should it have on your life? Now, and I would say, not perfect effects, but incomplete, but, but real and growing effects. What real growing, though incomplete effects should this have on your life? I, I, I thought of a few. Five, I think. First, obedience. A life of obedience. A life of serious obedience. Grace does not make us unconcerned about obeying God. It does not. It makes us more concerned because we don't want to just do the outward thing. We want to do it from a changed heart. We want to do it from a heart that has been changed. It's full of God's grace. We are not antinomians. We are not lawless people. The New Testament says that, kind of describes it this way, that we are to work out 
what God works in. We are to work out what God works in. Paul says in Philippians 2, work out your salvation, your own salvation, with fear and trembling. Because it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It is God who puts his law in your minds and writes them on your hearts. And so work out what he works in. We are to be people of obedience. We're to be people who long to do the will of God. We want to do it. And here's, his, here's how practical that gets. When our will and God's will butt heads, more and more, our wills give way. Right? Because we want to please our master. We don't want to just live for ourselves anymore. We don't want to just do our own thing. We want to please our Lord. Jesus said, I, I only do what my father shows me. I only say what he tells me to say. You get this idea that Jesus loved to do the will of the father. And those who are believers who have been brought into the new covenant and building their lives on the new covenant, they will be more and more obedient. Number two, faith. A life marked by faith. How often, as you go throughout your week, do you think about the promises of God? How often do you? Are you a treasure hunter as you open the Bible? Looking for promises to bank your life on? I've given you four today. These would be great ones. How often do you think about the promises of God? Or do you just get up and say, what do I got to do today? Uh, You kind of sleepwalk through life. How often, just honestly, how often do you think about God's promises? If you build your life on the promises of God, you will be a person of faith. Faith will govern your life more than fear and anxiety, more than stress and pressures of life. You will build, excuse me, your life will be full of faith. Isaiah 41.10 says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. Number three, this is the third mark of someone who's building their life on these promises. They will be faithful people. They will be faithful people. A life marked by covenantal commitment to others. When you believe the gospel and really understand the covenantal commitment of God to you, it will give you the resolve to be faithful and committed to others. There's this, pro- there's this uh, proverb, I didn't look it up, so I think it might be 28.1. And it says, um, Many a man proclaim their steadfast love, but a faithful man who can find When you understand God's covenantal commitment to you, you will look for opportunities to enter into commitment with others. Obviously, the ones that God has prescribed for us. Foremost, marriage, family, and church. You will not be 
you know, non-committal. In other words, you won't buy into the American idea of human autonomy is the highest good. Don't tell me what, I want to be free from the shackles of being too connected with people, right? That rugged individual spirit of America, which has some good things, right? Take care of yourself and your family, but has some negative consequences as well. Your life will be marked by faithfulness, which is a fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Number four, you will be, excuse me, new covenant people are people of the book. We're people of the book. Not Not just people who like to read, we're people of the book, right? Not books, the book especially. The promise that all those who are, who, are, who are brought into the new covenant, who trust in Christ, know the Lord. When we are initiated into God's family, we begin a lifelong journey of knowing God. And God's given us a book. as to how to know him. He reveals himself to us. And of course, we need more. We need, I would say we need more to, to, to fully grow. We need more than just the Bible, right? We need the Holy Spirit's illuminating work and we need community and we need help in other ways. But I would say this, you will never grow in your knowledge of God with a closed Bible. You won't. You won't. It won't happen. At the end of Second Peter, Peter says, verse, chapter 3, verse 16, he says, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. In, first, excuse me, in Colossians chapter 1, Paul prays, that the people would be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. And then listen to this, increasing in the knowledge of God. New covenant people are people of the word. They're people of God's book. They're people of the Bible. They open the Bible. They want to know God better. Right? Think of Paul, after he'd walked with Jesus for multiple decades, Philippians chapter three, he says, oh, I want to know him. I hope no one's sitting here today saying, I, I know him pretty darn well. I think I'm good here. <laughs> oh, to know him. Number five. New covenant people are free and they're happy about it. They're free and they're happy. What do I mean, what do I mean by that? <laughs> that just sounds kind of, you know, new agey or something. They're free. They're a life marked by free, the freedom of forgiveness. The freedom of total forgiveness. Imagine... Um, Imagine stand, two people standing on the, sh- the shore of a lake and 
it's covered with ice, but don't know how thick it is, right? I mean, they didn't know how thick it was. And um, one of them kind of just barely inches out over the, just just onto the ice because he doesn't know if it's like an inch thick or a foot thick. He's just not sure. So he's just barely inching out. He's like kind of tapping with his foot. You know, he gets a big stick and kind of taps out there a little bit. And the other guy's just like, he just runs out there raucous and excited and free and just sails across the lake to the other side. Because he knows it's a foot thick. You can live your life unsure of God's forgiveness of the freedom that is ours in Christ or we can live wholehearted and free on the solid foundation of God's grace for us in Christ and this total forgiveness. Forgiven people are free. They're carefree, not careless, but they're carefree and they're happy. John 8.32 says this, he who the Son sets free is free indeed. He who the Son sets free is free indeed. Well, while establishing the Lord's Supper, Jesus passed the cup and he said this, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. The new covenant is in the blood of Jesus. In the blood of Jesus. The new covenant is established and inaugurated in the blood of Jesus or in the death of Christ. And all these promises have been purchased and secured for us in the blood of Jesus and through Christ. So what must you do today? Believe. Believe. Lay hold of Christ. John, or in John chapter 6, some, some people come to Jesus and say, what must we do to do the works of God? <clears throat> what must we do? That's what I'm asking you. What must we do? And Jesus said, this is the work of God. Believe in the Son that the Father has sent. Believe. Believe. You believe in all these promises are yours. You believe in all of the promises of God are yours because all of the promises of God find their yes in Christ. So we're to believe. We're to trust. We're to believe in the finished work of Christ. That's the point, probably the main point of the book of Hebrews, the finished, final work of Jesus. And these promises are yours promise of this inner power to obey God, this promise of intimate interpersonal knowledge or this knowledge of God, intimate knowledge of God, this relationship with God, the promise of, of this new life that we have in Christ, the promise of total forgiveness, and the promise of mutual personal relationship with God. It's all yours. It's yours through faith in Christ alone. So look to him. Look to him. Hold on to him. Look look to him and believe. And all the promises are yours. Right now. Let's pray.